we're in this series on the book of Exodus called Exodus. He draws us out to draw us in. And we're looking at this story of how God draws his people out of slavery and then draws them into worship. This story starts in Egypt where Pharaoh is forcing the people to build pyramids and it's going to end at Mount Sinai with God instructing the people to build a tabernacle. God draws us out to draw us in. That's what we're going to see in this series. And today is an incredible passage. In today's passage, we're going to see that God's power and wisdom are so much greater than our own. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that's what we're going to see in this passage today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through the story together, point out a few details, and this story in chapter two basically divides into two scenes. Scene one is baby Moses, and scene two is adult Moses. And each one of those scenes has a big truth for us to learn today. And so we're going to walk through it, and then we're going to talk about what that truth is for each scene. Make sense? So if you have a Bible, Exodus chapter two is where we're going to be. If you do not have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in front of you in the seat underneath. Um, It's on page 47, and we'd love to have you follow along with us. Last week, in Exodus chapter 1, we saw it end by Pharaoh giving this command, this edict, that all of the baby boys who were born to the nation of Israel needed to be thrown into the Nile. And his reason for that is he was threatened at how this nation was growing under his watch. So he imprisoned them or enslaved them, um, and he then was going to kill all of the boys by throwing them into the Nile. This chapter begins with the birth of one of those boys. It says it was a Levite family. The woman became pregnant and she gave birth to a son. And it says that when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Now, every mom, I think, thinks that her baby boy is beautiful. So, This is not super unique here in verse 2, but the language actually is kind of unique. Literally, in verse 2, it says, she saw him that he was good. She saw him that he was good. And that language is an echo of the creation account. When God is creating things and he's looking at it and saying, it's good. And that is a clue that what's about to happen with this baby is going to be a new act of God. God is about to make something new. He's about to rescue his people. So she sees this baby boy that he was beautiful. And so she hid him. But she can't hide him forever. And so eventually what she does is put him in this basket and put him in the river. 
Now notice that she's following the command. The command is you got to throw all the boys into the river. Pharaoh didn't specify if you were allowed to do it with a basket. And so she puts them in the river in a basket that she's covered with asphalt and pitch. She's taken some mud and made it to where he'll be able to float along and maybe be hidden in the basket. She doesn't know what's going to happen to him, but she's trusting that something good might happen to this good son of hers. And it's interesting, the word basket in verse 3 and the word basket in verse 5 is literally the word ark. Ark. It's the only other time that the word ark shows up in the Pentateuch outside of the story of Noah and the ark. And I think that's significant. We'll talk about why in a minute. But God is now connecting this son, this boy, Moses, with a man who had come before. God had worked to save his people, a remnant of his people before through this man named Noah by putting him in an ark and saving him through water. And now God is going to save this boy through water. It just so happens that this ark, this basket floats down the river while Pharaoh's daughter needs to take a bath. And they see the basket. She calls for it. In verse 6, when they open it up and see the child, Pharaoh's daughter has compassion for the baby. Pharaoh's daughter, the one who has made the edict, his daughter has compassion for the Hebrew boy. Pharaoh's responsible for trying to kill the Hebrew boys, but his daughter, the apple has fallen far from the tree. She feels sorry for him. It just so happens that Moses' sister had been watching. And so she, when she notices that they've found the boy, says, should I go call one of the Hebrew women to nurse him for you? And so she goes and gets Moses' mom. And Pharaoh's daughter says, you know what? I'll take care of y'all. Go nurse him for me. And when he finishes nursing, we don't know how long that was, probably longer than we go in our culture. They bring the boy back to Pharaoh's daughter and she adopts him into her own family. He grows up in her family. And then she names him Moses because she says, I drew him out of the water. And the word Moses sounds like the word that means to draw out. That's where we got the subtitle for our series. God draws us out to draw us in. What God will do for the whole nation, he's doing in a microcosm way with Moses here. So Moses ends up in Pharaoh's house. And then he grows up, verse 11, years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. 
He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Verse 12. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. So Moses grows up in Pharaoh's house, but something in him resonated with his people. He goes out one day. We learn that he's 40 years old later in the Bible. He goes out as a 40-year-old man, and he recognizes that his own people are suffering. It upsets him so much that he steps in and ends up killing this Egyptian. He doesn't know what to do at that point, so he just buries him in the sand and thinks, well, uh, we'll see what happens from here, I guess. Verse 13, the next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting and he's going, wait a minute, you can't turn on each other. What are you doing? And so he asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Here's how they respond to him, verse 14. Who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And what Moses thought was a secret, he realizes is now And so, then Moses became afraid and thought, what I did is certainly known. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now, Midian is also a descendant of Abraham. That's who it's named after. And so Moses is fleeing, but he's in God's providence, fleeing still within the larger scope of Abraham's family. Now, verse 16. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water. It's kind of ironic. And filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away. But Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. Moses just can't help but rescue people. It's who God designed them to be. Verse 18, when they returned to their father, Ruel, he asked, why have you come back so quickly today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Notice they call him an an Egyptian. So where is he? He asked his daughters. Why then did you leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. Moses agreed to stay with the man and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. She gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom. For he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. That's Moses' story. For 40 years, He's going to stay out in Midian. Eventually, over those 40 years, he's going to give up on the dream of being the rescuer of his people. But God will not allow him to stay in Midian. He draws us out to draw us in. But we'll get there next week. Today's two sections, two scenes in chapter two. The first one is baby Moses. The second is adult Moses. But each of them are full of irony. In scene one, there's the irony of Moses being saved. In scene two, 
there's the irony of Moses being rejected. We're going to talk about what we can learn from each of those ironies. Here's what we learn from the first one. The irony of Moses being saved in verses 1 through 10 shows that God is sovereign. The irony of Moses being saved shows that God is sovereign. Why is it ironic that Moses is saved? Well, there's at least three reasons. First, Pharaoh had commanded that we need to kill these boys by throwing them in the river. It just so happens that by being put in the river, what was meant to kill actually becomes the means by which Moses is saved. Pharaoh is the one who makes the edict that all the boys need to die. It's his own daughter who ends up saving the one who will undo him. And Pharaoh felt only threatened by the boys. That's why he commanded that the boys need to be executed. And yet it's the the women in the story who actually end up undermining all of Pharaoh's plans. Do you see the irony in those three things? There's the river, it's meant to kill, but it saves. Pharaoh's daughter is the one who actually saves the one who will deliver them. And it's the women in the story, not the men who end up undermining Pharaoh. These three ironies show us that God is sovereign. What does that mean? The fact that God is sovereign means that he has the right and the power to do whatever he pleases. He has the right and the power to do whatever he pleases. In Isaiah chapter 40, this is maybe one of the richest texts that talks about God's sovereignty. It tells us that there is no one like our God. He has measured the waters in his hand. The nations, including Egypt, are like a speck of dust or like a drop in a bucket. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 40, verse 25. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal, asks the Holy One. Look up and see who created these. He brings out the stars by number. He calls all of them by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. God is sovereign over the stars and the moon and the galaxies. And so Pharaoh, you think that you can stop his plans? You think that you can destroy his people? You think that you are greater than God? You are not. That's the point. The irony of Pharaoh trying to kill and yet God using that very means to save is a demonstration that God has power over Pharaoh. God is sovereign over Pharaoh. As powerful as Pharaoh was, he could not stop God's plans. Isaiah 40 verse 23 says this, he reduces princes, those in power to nothing and makes judges of the earth like a wasteland. Listen to Job chapter five, verse 12. He frustrates the schemes of the crafty so that they achieve no success. 
Pharaoh thought it was a brilliant plan. We'll just enslave the people and we'll just kill their sons. And then we will reign over them. And God frustrates those plans so that they come to ruin because God is sovereign over Pharaoh. And because God is sovereign, it means that nothing can stop him. No king, no law, no river, no power, nothing. And that is just as true today as it was then. The United States, China, North Korea, none of them, however powerful they may become. If another nation were to rise up, no matter how powerful the nations of the world may become, God is sovereign over them. God is sovereign over Biden and over Putin. And because God is sovereign, what man means for evil, God works for good. Listen to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This is one of the last things said in the book of Genesis. And remember from last week, Exodus is connected to Genesis. It's episode two. Joseph is talking to his brothers and he says, you planned evil against me by selling me to slavery in Egypt, by lying and saying that I had died. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. This was true of Joseph's story. Now it's true of Moses's story and it will be true of Israel's story. That what, what man might mean for evil, God will work for good. God will accomplish his purposes even in the face of evil. Isn't this the story of the gospel? For Moses, the means of death becomes the means of salvation. And that ultimately becomes true for the Israelites. What was meant to kill the Israelite nation by killing these boys actually becomes the means by which God raises up a savior who will bring all of the people out of Egypt. And that is also what God does in the gospel. The means of death becomes the means of salvation. What was meant to kill will actually save. Why? Because God is sovereign over all events and God in his providence brings about his desired purpose. Listen to Acts chapter two, verse 22 through 24. This is Peter preaching. This is after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. And here's what he says. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Verse 23. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. So who delivered Jesus up? God did. 
in his own determined plan and foreknowledge. That is, before the foundations of the earth, God knew Jesus is going to the cross. God is offering him up to be crucified. But how are those plans accomplished? You used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. What you meant for evil, God meant for good, Peter says. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Peter says what you meant for evil against Jesus of Nazareth, the one attested to by miracles and wonders, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And now he calls them to repent. Do you know what the right response to this truth about God and his sovereignty is? Do you know what the right response to God's power displayed in offering up Jesus to die on the cross? Do you know what, God, what, what the right response is to God's power in raising Jesus from the dead? The right response is for us to repent of our sins and trust in Jesus, to believe in him so that we can be saved from our sins. This is why Jesus came. The means of death becomes the means of salvation because God is sovereign. And Peter says, repent. And he says, be baptized in Acts chapter two. And here's what's interesting. This is kind of a sub point, but I think it's worth sharing. What's interesting is baptism is a picture, a reminder of this very story, that what's meant to kill is actually the means of salvation. When somebody goes under the water, it's like, we're drowning you under there. But it's actually this act of dying that brings about new life. It's a symbol that Jesus died so that we can live. Jesus was crucified so that people can be saved. Baptism is a picture of this. And I'm not just making that up. By using the word ark here in verse three and verse five, God is connecting Moses to the Noah story where God used water to judge and to save. God saves through water in the Noah story and now in the Moses story. And eventually he will do that in the Israel story when they cross through the Red Sea. Well, that's a whole theme that will be developed when we get there, Exodus 14. We're not there today. But here's the connection today is baptism is a reminder of this story that God's sovereign. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water, right? That's what happens for Moses. Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Here's the, the point of this subpoint. Anytime you see a baptism, it should remind you that God works evil for good. God brings the dead to life. And he does it through his son, Jesus, who was raised from the dead. So, the irony of Moses being saved teaches us that God is sovereign. He works evil for good. And this has huge implications for us. There are so many times we look at terrible circumstances and we think nothing good could come from this. But because God is sovereign, that is never true. In the midst of evil circumstances, we have a present guarantee that God will use affliction to produce character in us. Romans 5 says, we also have a future guarantee that no matter how hard things may get, no matter how much injustice may exist in the world, God will make all things right someday. One of the most famous verses, Romans 8, 28 says, we know that all things work together for, for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. We also have a present hope that God can use even the worst circumstances for good even now. He does not promise that every single bad circumstance has a good purpose immediately that you can see. He doesn't say that. Many times we won't be able to see the good that comes from a difficult circumstance. But because God is sovereign, we can trust that good can come. And so we can hope and pray that God would use difficult circumstances to bring about good even now. God, use this even now, somehow, for good. Let me tell you a story of an example of that. There's a woman who's very close to me. Um, she didn't grow up in a Christian home. She married a man that she shouldn't have married when she was young. Um, she wound up um, being divorced after discovering that he had been unfaithful to her numerous times. She was a single mom. And someone invited her to an event at their church where they were going to share the gospel. She heard the gospel. She believed. She wrote on the connect card that she wanted somebody to follow up with her. And nobody ever did. But long story short, because she had heard the gospel and the gospel is a powerful seed that can't help but bear fruit when it lands on good soil, 
she just kept trusting God. And she wandered into this other church, different church in town. She got connected there with a few people who discipled her. And in a strange turn of events, after a couple of years, she ends up getting married to a solid Christian man. She ends up coming back to the church that never followed up with her. And she becomes a leader who just has a heart for people who don't feel connected to the church to feel connected. And she has ministered to thousands of people. And I'm one of them. God in his sovereignty works all things together for good. We don't always get to see that immediately. But because Jesus Christ was crucified and raised from the dead, we can trust that it is true. God is sovereign. The irony of Moses being saved shows us that. Let's look at the second scene. The irony of Moses being rejected shows us that we are stubborn. We are stubborn. Or to use a biblical phrase, we are stiff-necked people. It's interesting that Moses' story has a plot change to the typical hero narrative. Here's how a hero narrative typically goes. You grow up in obscurity, you do your time, you suffer, you rise through the ranks. Eventually, after your time in obscurity and after you met some kind of mentor, you come into the light and because of everything you've gone through, now you stand up and you're the, the ideal candidate to lead the people through this terrible thing and to save them, right? That's the typical hero plot line. Moses' story does not follow that plot line. Moses grows up with power and privilege. And then when he's 40, he chooses to leave the comforts of the palace to identify with the people who are suffering. And how do they respond to him? They reject him and he is exiled. And it will only be after his rejection and his exile that he comes back to redeem them. You see that storyline? Do you see how that's different than the normal hero narrative? And who does that sound like? It sounds like the savior who leads a new exodus, who leaves the power and privileges, not of Pharaoh's house, but of heaven and chooses to identify with his brothers and sisters who are locked in a prison cell of darkness. But the salvation comes only after he is rejected and exiled, not to Midian, but to Hades, to the realm of the dead. But after his exile, God works wonders by raising him from the dead. 
The story of Moses and the Exodus is a foreshadowing of the new Exodus that God will work through his son, Jesus. The irony is that Moses, the hero that God has preserved through the Nile, through Pharaoh's daughter, through the women in the story, grows up and the people say, who made you a judge and arbiter over us? Oh, are you going to kill us too like you killed the Egyptian? In the New Testament, the first martyr is a man named Stephen. And just before he's killed, he retells this story with some commentary. Here's what he says, Acts chapter 7, verse 25. He assumed, that's Moses, he assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him. But they didn't understand. He goes on, Acts 7, verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected when they said, who appointed you a ruler and a judge? This one God sent as a ruler and deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the one that God used. Do you see the irony? They rejected him. God says, that's the one we're using. Acts 7.39 our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. Instead, they pushed him aside and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. And now here is Stephen's conclusion. And after he says this, they kill him by stoning him to death. You stiff-necked, you stubborn people with, with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Stephen says, what you did for Moses, what your ancestors did to Moses, they did to all the prophets. And that's what you have done to the greatest prophet, Jesus, the one who came to save you, you have rejected what the, what the Israelites do to Moses is what the Israelites do to Jesus when he comes. And the, tem, the temptation for all of us is to do that ourselves. To see the way in which God works. Because his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We think we know how God would act, but we don't. And so we see the stuff God does and we think that's stupid Here's what should really happen. Here's what a good God would actually do. Here's what a God should do. And we decide to create God in our own image, which is the very thing God says not to do in the Ten Commandments. We'll get there March 12th. <laughs> but we often write off the ways of God because they don't look like we think they should. And this is true of the cross of Christ. It looks like foolishness to the world. The people rejected Jesus when he came because they resisted his claims. That is, I'm God, you gotta listen to me. And they resisted his ways. Why are you going to the cross? If you're really the son of God, then come down from there. 
If you're really the son of God, then save yourself. You saved others, but you can't save yourself. They resisted his claims and they resisted his ways. We do the same thing today. Just this week, I saw this Facebook dialogue taking place by a pastor who says, I find it interesting that you can, that you think one can only value Jesus's death and assign it meaning if you believe that he was dying for our sins. I believe Jesus's death was a pivotal moment in the life of Christ and our faith, but I don't believe that that was because he needed to die for our sins. It's linked to an article from a very popular theologian And he writes, substitutionary atonement, that is the belief that Jesus had to die in our place to satisfy God's wrath towards sinners. Substitutionary atonement implies that God the Father was petty, offended in the way that humans are, and unfree to love and forgive of God's own volition. This is a very untrustworthy image of God, which undercuts everything else. Jesus didn't have to die for our sins, they say. That makes God petty and, oh, just who could possibly have a God like that? Is God petty for demanding payment for sin or is God infinitely holy and just? Jesus didn't die for our sins, but we're gonna continue to follow him because he gave us a great example to follow of how to love people even when they kill you. And the spirit of that lives on as we continue to serve others today. I don't, I don't understand how you can claim to be a follower of Jesus and deny that Jesus died for our sins. And yet that's what people want to do. They want to deconstruct the faith. They want to say that this doctrine of substitutionary atonement is just a Western thing that was read into the scriptures hundreds of years later and Yet, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 says, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, you can debate substitutionary atonement, and if that's what Paul means by he died for our sins, but you can't say that Jesus just didn't die for our sins, and just expect to still be a follower of Jesus. You know what that is? That is wanting to be God yourself. You don't want the Jesus of the Bible. You want the Jesus that you want. And listen, that is not people out there. That is people in here. We do that. We are stiff-necked, stubborn people who resist the ways of God. We think we know better than God. And so we try to fashion him into our image. 
We do that with sexuality. God says the boundaries for sexuality are a man and a woman and a covenant of marriage. That's the context for sexual pleasure. And we want to be God ourselves. God says that we should be rich towards him and not build up treasure for ourselves on earth. But we want to build up treasure. God says that we should honor our parents. But we think our parents are idiots. God says that we should live truthfully even when that will damage our reputation. But we think we should hide and stay in the dark. We think that God should do what we want him to do now. God is content to let you be in Midian for 40 years. Each of those things may hit differently, but all of them feel like a cross. All of them feel like having to say no to what I want and yes to what God wants. Why in the world should people submit to a God like that? Because eventually, Moses will return with the Lord's staff in his hand, and eventually, Jesus will be raised from the dead the third day, and eventually, Jesus will return to the earth to judge the living and the dead, and when that day comes, those who belong to him will also appear with him in glory. So, if what God says is true and if what God has is better, we should go with God. Let's recap the message. The irony of Moses being saved shows us that God is sovereign. The irony of Moses being rejected shows that we are stubborn and need to repent of that. But the joy in the trial comes from knowing that the sovereign God loves us no matter what. Look at verse 23. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites. And God knew. 
God will be faithful to keep his promises. God is not just sovereign and reigning, but God is merciful and compassionate. And he uses the right and power that he has to reign for the good of his people. They cry out to him and he hears them. Even after they've rejected the deliverer that he has raised up, he hears them. This is why Paul says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Is your life surrendered to the sovereign God? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we praise you for being a God who is not like us. God, you are so much greater than we are. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your ways are higher than our ways. So God, would we be humbled today? Would we let you be God and you alone? God, would your spirit be active now? Would you awaken faith today? Would we not be crushed by this truth, but would we be saved by it? Would we be a church who clings to your sovereignty and your, your, your sovereign power to save? It's in Jesus' name that I ask, amen. Would you stand and respond with us?